This performance is a co-production of loudlit.org and Literal Systems. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Performed by Mark Devine Chapter 33 So I started for town in the wagon, and when I was halfway I see a wagon coming, and sure enough it was Tom Sawyer, and I stopped and waited till he come along, and I says, Hold on! And it stopped alongside, and his mouth opened up like a trunk, and stayed so, and he swallowed two or three times like a person that's got a dry throat, and then says, I ain't ever done you no harm, you know that. So then, what you want to come back and hunt me for? I says, I ain't come back, I ain't been gone. When he heard my voice, it righted him up some, but he weren't quite satisfied yet. He says, Don't you play nothing on me, because I wouldn't on you. Honest Injun, you ain't a ghost. Honest Injun, I ain't, I says. Well, I, well, that ought to settle it, of course. But I can't somehow seem to understand it no way. Looky here, weren't you ever murdered at all? No, I weren't ever murdered at all. I played it on them. You come in here and feel of me if you don't believe me. So he done it, and it satisfied him. And he was that glad to see me again, he didn't know what to do. And he wanted to know all about it right off, because it was a grand adventure and mysterious, and so it hit him where he lived. But I said, leave it alone till by and by, and told his driver to wait. And we drove off a little piece, and I told him the kind of fix I was in, and what did he reckon we better do. Well, he said, let him alone a minute and don't disturb him. So we thought and thought, and pretty soon he says, It's all right, I've got it. Take my trunk in your wagon, and let on its yarn, and you turn back and fool along slow, so as to get to the house about the time you ought to, and I'll go towards town a piece, and take a fresh start, and get there a quarter or a half an hour after you, and you needn't let on to know me at first. I says, All right, but wait a minute, there's one more thing, a thing that nobody don't know but me. And that is, there's a nigger here I'm a-trying to steal out of slavery, and his name is Jim, old Miss Watson's Jim. He says, What? Why, Jim is... He stopped and went to studying. I says, I know what you'll say. You'll say it's dirty, low-down business. But what if it is? I'm low-down, and I'm a-gonna steal him, and I want you to keep mum and not let on. Will you? His eye lit up, and he says, I'll help you steal him. Well, I let go all holts then like I was shot. It was the most astonishing speech I ever heard, and I'm bound to say Tom Sawyer fell considerable in my estimation. Only I couldn't believe it. Tom Sawyer, a nigger-stealer. Oh, shucks, I says, you're joking. I ain't joking either. Well then, I says, joking or no joking, if you hear anything said about a runaway nigger, don't forget to remember that you don't know nothing about him, and I don't know nothing about him. Then we took the trunk and put it in my wagon, and he drove off his way and I drove mine. But of course I forgot all about driving slow on accounts of being glad and full of thinking, so I got home a heap too quick for that length of a trip. The old gentleman was at the door, and he says, Why, this is wonderful. Whoever would have thought it was in that mare to do it? I wish we'd a timed her, and she ain't sweated a hair, not a hair. It's wonderful. Why, I wouldn't take a hundred dollars for that horse now. I wouldn't, honest. 
and yet I'd have sold her for fifteen before and thought twas all she was worth. That's all he said. He was the innocentest, best old soul I ever see. But it weren't surprising, because he weren't only just a farmer, he was a preacher, too, and had a little one-horse log church down back of the plantation, which he built it himself at his own expense, for a church and schoolhouse, and never charged nothing for his preaching, and it was worth it, too. There was plenty other farmer preachers like that, and done the same way down south. In about half an hour, Tom's wagon drove up to the front stile, and Aunt Sally, she see it through the window because it was only about fifty yards, and says, Why, there's somebody come. I wonder who tis. Why, I do believe it's a stranger. Jimmy, that's one of the children, run and tell lies to put on another plate for dinner. Everybody made a rush for the front door, because, of course, a stranger don't come every year, and so he lays over the yaller fever for interest when he does come. Tom was over the stile and starting for the house. The wagon was spinning up the road for the village, and we was all bunched in the front door. Tom had his store clothes on, and an audience. And that was always nuts for Tom Sawyer. In them circumstances, it weren't no trouble to him to throw in an amount of style that was suitable. He weren't a boy to meeky along up that yard like a sheep. No, he come calm and important like a ram. When he got in front of us, he lifts his hat ever so gracious and dainty, like it was the lid of a box that had butterflies asleep in it, and he didn't want to disturb them, and says, Mr. Archibald Nichols, I presume? No, my boy, says the old gentleman. I'm sorry to say it, your driver has deceived you. Nichols's place is down a matter of three mile more. Come in, come in. Tom, he took a look back over his shoulder and says, Too late, he's out of sight. Yes, he's gone, my son, and you must come in and eat dinner with us, and then we'll hitch up and take you down to Nichols's. Oh, I can't make you so much trouble. I couldn't think of it. I'll walk. I don't mind the distance. But we won't let you walk. It wouldn't be southern hospitality to do it. Come right in. Oh, do, says Aunt Sally. It ain't a bit of trouble to us, not a bit in the world. You must stay. It's a long, dusty three mile, and we can't let you walk. And besides, I've already told him to put on another plate when I see you coming, so you mustn't disappoint us. Come right in and make yourself at home. So Tom, he thanked them very hearty and handsome, and let himself be persuaded and come in. And when he was in, he said he was a stranger from Hicksville, Ohio, and his name was William Thompson, and he made another bow. Well, he run on and on and on, making up stuff about Hicksville and everybody in it he could invent, and I getting a little nervous and wondering how this was going to help me out of my scrape. And at last, still talking along, he reached over and kissed Aunt Sally right on the mouth and then settled back again in his chair comfortable and was going on talking. But she jumped up and wiped it off with the back of her hand and says, You audacious puppy! He looked kind of hurt and says, I'm surprised at you, ma'am. You're su- Why, what do you reckon I am? I have a good notion to take and- Say, what do you mean by kissing me? He looked kind of humble and says, I didn't mean nothing, ma'am. I didn't mean no harm. I, I thought you'd like it. Why, you born fool. She took up the spinning stick, and it looked like it was all she could do to keep from giving him a crack with it. What made you think I'd like it? Well, I don't know. Only they, they told me you would. They told you I would. Whoever told you's another lunatic. I never heard the beat of it. Who's they? 
Why, everybody. They all said so, ma'am. It was all she could do to hold in, and her eyes snapped and her fingers worked like she wanted to scratch him, and she says, Who's everybody? Out with their names, or they'll be an idiot short. He got up and looked distressed and fumbled his hat and says, I'm sorry, and I weren't expecting it. They told me to. They all told me to. They said, kiss her, and said she'd like it. They all said it, every one of them. But I'm sorry, ma'am, and I won't do it no more. I won't, honest. You won't, won't you? Well, I should reckon you won't. No, ma'am, I'm honest about it. I won't ever do it again, till you ask me. Till I ask you? Will I never see the beat of it in my born days? I'll lay you'll be the Methuselah numbskull of creation before I ever ask you, or the likes of you. Well, he says, doesn't surprise me so. I can't make it out somehow. They said you would, and I thought you would, but... He stopped and looked around slow, like he wished he could run across a friendly eye somewheres, and fetched up the old gentleman's and says, Didn't you think she'd like me to kiss her, sir? Why, no, I... I Well, no, I believe I didn't. Then he looks on around the same way to me and says, Tom, didn't you think Aunt Sally to open out her arms and say... Sid Sawyer. My land, she says, breaking in and jumping for him. You impudent young rascal to fool a body so. And was going to hug him, but he fended her off and says, No, not till you've asked me first. So she didn't lose no time, but asked him and hugged him and kissed him over and over again and then turned him over to the old man and he took what was left. And after they got a little quiet again, she says, Why, dear me, I never see such a surprise. We weren't looking for you at all, but only Tom. Sis never wrote to me about anybody coming but him. It's because it weren't intended for any of us to come but Tom, he says. But I begged and begged, and at the last minute she let me come too. So, coming down the river, me and Tom thought it would be a first-rate surprise for him to come here to the house first and for me to by and by tag along and drop in and let on to be a stranger. But it was a mistake, Aunt Sally. This ain't no healthy place for a stranger to come. No, not impudent whelps, Sid. You ought to had your jaws boxed. I ain't been so put out since I don't know when. But I don't care. I don't mind the terms. I'd be willing to stand a thousand such jokes to have you here. Well, to think of that performance. I don't deny it. I was most putrefied with astonishment when you give me that smack. We had dinner out in that broad open passage betwixt the house and the kitchen, and there was things enough on that table for seven families, and all hot, too. None of your flabby, tough meat that's laid in a cupboard in a damp cellar all night and tastes like a hunk of old, cold cannibal in the morning. Uncle Silas, he asked a pretty long blessing over it, but it was worth it, and it didn't cool it a bit neither, the way I've seen them kinds of interruptions do lots of times. There was considerable good deal of talk all the afternoon, and me and Tom was on the lookout all the time, but it weren't no use. They didn't happen to say nothing about any runaway nigger, and we was afraid to try to work up to it. But at supper at night, one of the little boys says, Pa, mayn't Tom and Sid and me go to the show? No, says the old man. I reckon there ain't going to be any, and you couldn't go if there was, because the runaway nigger told Burton and me all about that scandalous show, and Burton said he would tell the people. So I reckon they've drove the audacious loafers out of town before this time. So there it was, but I couldn't help it. Tom and me was to sleep in the same room in bed, so, being tired, we bid good night and went up to bed right after supper 
and clumb out the window and down the lightning rod and shoved for the town, for I didn't believe anybody was going to give the king and the duke a hint, and so if I didn't hurry up and give them one, they'd get into trouble sure. On the road, Tom, he told me all about how it was reckoned I was murdered, and how Pap disappeared pretty soon and didn't come back no more, and what a stir there was when Jim run away, and I told Tom all about our royal nonsuch rapscallions, and as much as the raft voyage as I had time to, and as we struck into the town and up through the middle of it, it was as much as half after eight then. Here comes a raging rush of people with torches, and an awful whooping and yelling, and banging tin pans and blowing horns, and we jumped to one side to let them go by, and as they went by, I see they had the king and the duke astraddled of a rail, that is, I knowed it was the king and the duke, though they was all over tar and feathers, and didn't look like nothing in the world that was human. Just looked like a couple of monstrous big soldier plumes. Well, it made me sick to see it, and I was sorry for them poor pitiful rascals. It seemed like I could never feel any hardness against them any more in the world. It was a dreadful thing to see. Human beings can be awful cruel to one another. We see we was too late. Couldn't do no good. We asked some stragglers about it, and they said everybody went to the show looking very innocent and laid low and kept dark till the poor old king was in the middle of his cavortings on the stage. Then somebody give a signal, and the house rose up and went for them. So we poked along back home. And I weren't feeling so brash as I was before, but kind of ornery and humble and to blame somehow, though I hadn't done nothing. But that's always the way. It don't make no difference whether you do right or wrong. A person's conscience ain't got no sense, and just goes for him anyway. If I had a yaller dog that didn't know no more than a person's conscience does, I would pison him. It takes up more room than all the rest of a person's insides, and yet ain't no good nohow. Tom Sawyer, he says the same. Chapter 34 We stopped talking and got to thinking. By and by, Tom says, Looky here, Huck, what fools we are to not think of it before. I bet I know where Jim is. No, where? In that hut down by the ash hopper. Why, looky here, when we was at dinner, didn't you see a nigger man go in there with some vittles? Yes. What did you think the vittles was for? Well, for a dog. So'd I. Well, it wasn't for a dog. Why? Because part of it was watermelon. So it was. I noticed it. Well, it does beat all that I never thought about a dog not eating watermelon. It shows how a body can see and don't see at the same time. Well, the nigger unlocked the padlock when he went in, and he locked it again when he came out. He fetched Uncle a key about the time we got up from table. The same key, I bet. Watermelon shows man, lock shows prisoner, and it ain't likely there's two prisoners on such a little plantation and where the people's all so kind and good. Jim's the prisoner. All right. I'm glad we found it out detective fashion. I wouldn't give shucks for any other way. Now you work your mind and study out a plan to steal Jim, and I will study out one too, and we'll take the one we like the best. What a head for just a boy to have. If I had Tom Sawyer's head, I wouldn't trade it off to be a duke, nor made of a steamboat, nor a clown in a circus, nor nothing I can think of. I went to thinking out a plan, but only just to be doing something. I knowed very well where the right plan was going to come from. Pretty soon, Tom says, Ready? Yes, I says. All right, bring it out. My plan is this, I says. We can easy find out if it's Jim in there. 
then get up my canoe tomorrow night and fetch my raft over from the island. Then first dark night comes, steal the key out of the old man's britches after he goes to bed, and shove off down the river on the raft with Jim, hiding daytimes and running nights, the way me and Jim used to do before. Wouldn't that plan work? Work? Why, certainly it would work, like rats are fighting, but it's too blame simple. There ain't nothing to it. What's the good of a plan that ain't got no more trouble than that? It's as mild as goose milk. Why, Huck, it wouldn't make no more talk than breaking into a soap factory. I never said nothing, because I weren't expecting nothing different. But I knowed mighty well that whenever he got his plan ready, it wouldn't have none of them objections to it. And it didn't. He told me what it was, and I see in a minute it was worth fifteen of mine for style, and would make Jim just as free a man as mine would, and maybe get us all killed besides. So I was satisfied, and said we would waltz in on it. I needn't tell what it was here, because I knowed it wouldn't stay the way it was. I knowed he would be changing it around every which way as we went along, and heaving in new bulliness wherever he got a chance. And that is what he done. Well, one thing was dead sure, and that was that Tom Sawyer was in earnest, and was actually going to help steal that nigger out of slavery. That was the thing that was too many for me. He was a boy that was respectable and well brung up, and had a character to lose, and folks at home that had characters, and he was bright, not leather-headed, and knowing, and not ignorant, and not mean, but kind. And yet here he was, without any more pride or rightness or feeling, than to stoop to this business and make himself a shame, and his family a shame before everybody. I couldn't understand it no way at all. It was outrageous, and I knowed I ought to just up and tell him so, and so be his true friend, and let him quit the thing right where he was and save himself. And I did start to tell him, but he shut me up and says, Don't you reckon I know what I'm about? Don't I generally know what I'm about? Yes. Didn't I say I was going to help steal the nigger? Yes. Well, then. That's all he said, and that's all I said. It weren't no use to say any more, because when he said he'd do a thing, he always done it. But I couldn't make out how he was willing to go into this thing, so I just let it go and never bothered no more about it. If he was bound to have it so, I couldn't help it. When we got home, the house was all dark and still, so we went on down to the hut by the ash hopper for to examine it. We went through the yard so as to see what the hounds would do. They knowed us, and didn't make no more noise than country dogs is always doing when anything comes by in the night. When we got to the cabin, we took a look at the front side, and the two sides, and the side I weren't acquainted with, which was the north side. We found a square window hole, up tolerable high, with just one stout board nailed across it. I says, Here's the ticket. This hole's big enough for Jim to get through if we wrench off the board. And Tom says, It's as simple as tit-tat-toe, three in a row, and as easy as playing hooky. I should hope we can find a way that's a little more complicated than that, Huck Finn. Well then, I says, how'll it do to saw him out, the way I done before I was murdered that time? That's more like, he says. It's real mysterious and troublesome and good, he says. But I bet we can find a way that's twice as long. There ain't no hurry. Let's keep on looking around. Betwixt the hut and the fence on the back side was a lean-to that joined the hut at the eaves and was made out of a plank. It was as long as a hut, but narrow, only about six foot wide. The door to it was at the south end and was padlocked. Tom, he went to the soap kettle and searched around and fetched back the iron thing they lift the lid with, so he took it and prized out one of the staples. The chain fell down, 
and we opened the door and went in, and shut it, and struck a match, and see the shed was only built against the cabin, and had no connection with it, and there weren't no floor to the shed, nor nothing in it but some old rusty played-out hose, and spades, and picks, and a crippled plow. The match went out, and so did we, and shoved in the staple again, and the door was locked as good as ever. Tom was joyful. He says, Now we're all right. We'll dig him out. It'll take about a week. Then we started for the house, and I went in the back door. You only have to pull a buckskin latch string. They don't fasten the doors, but that weren't romantical enough for Tom Sawyer. No way would do him, but he must climb up the lightning rod. But after he got up halfway about three times, and missed fire and fell every time, and the last time most busted his brains out, he thought he'd got to give it up. But after he was rested, he allowed he would give her one more turn for luck, and this time he made the trip. In the morning we was up at break of day, and down to the nigger cabins to pet the dogs and make friends with the nigger that fed Jim, if it was Jim that was being fed. The niggers was just getting through breakfast and starting for the fields, and Jim's nigger was piling up a tin pan with bread and meat and things, and whilst the others was leaving, the key come from the house. This nigger had a good-natured, chuckle-headed face, and his wool was all tied up in little bunches with thread. That was to keep witches off. He said the witches was pestering him awful these nights, and making him see all kinds of strange things and hear all kinds of strange words and noises, and he didn't believe he was ever witch so long before in his life. He got so worked up and got to running on so about his troubles, he forgot all about what he had been a-going to do. So Tom says, "'What's the vittles for?' Going to feed the dogs? The nigger kind of smiled around gradually over his face, like when you heave a brick bat in a mud puddle. And he says, Yes, Ma Sid, a dog. Curious dog, too. Does you want to go and take a look at him? Yes. I hunch Tom and whispers, You going? Right here in the daybreak? That weren't the plan. No, it weren't. But it's the plan now. So, drat him... We went along, but I didn't like it much. When we got in, we couldn't hardly see anything. It was so dark. But Jim was there, sure enough, and could see us, and he sings out, Why, Huck, and good land, ain't that Mr. Tom? I just knowed how it would be. I just expected it. I didn't know nothing to do, and if I had, I couldn't have done it, because that nigger busted in and said, Why, the gracious sake, do you know these gentlemen? We could see pretty well now. Tom, he looked at the nigger and steady and kind of wondering and says, Does who know us? Why, this year runaway nigger. I don't reckon he does. But what put that into your head? What put it there? Didn't he just this minute sing out like he knowed you? Tom says in a puzzled up kind of way. Well, that's mighty curious. Who sung out? When did he sing out? What did he sing out? He turns to me perfectly calm and says, Did you hear anybody sing out? Of course, there weren't nothing to be said but one thing, so I says, No, I ain't heard nobody say nothing. Then he turns to Jim and looks him over like he never see him before, and says, Did you sing out? Nah, sir, says Jim. I hain't said nothing, sir. Not a word? Nah, sir. I hain't said a word. Did you ever see us before? Nah, sir. Not as I knows on. So Tom turns to the nigger, which was looking wild and distressed, and says, kind of severe, what do you reckon's the matter with you, anyway? What made you think somebody sung out? Oh, it's the dad blame witches, sir, and I wished I was dead, I do. 
Dey's always at it, sir. And they most kill me. Dey scares me so. Please to don't tell nobody about it, sir. Or old Mar Silas, he'll scold me, cause he say they ain't no witches. I just wish to goodness he was here now. Then what would he say? I just bet he couldn't find no way to get around it this time. But it's always just so. People that sot stays sot. They won't look into nothing and find it out for themselves. And when you find it out and tell them about it, they don't believe you. Tom gave him a dime and said we wouldn't tell nobody, and told him to buy some more thread to tie up his wool with, and then looks at Jim and says, I wonder if Uncle Silas is going to hang this nigger. If I was to catch a nigger that was ungrateful enough to run away, I wouldn't give him up. I'd hang him. And whilst the nigger stepped to the door to look at the dime and bite it to see if it was good, he whispers to Jim and says, Don't ever let on to know us, and if you hear any digging going on nights, it's us. We're going to set you free. Jim only had time to grab us by the hand and squeeze it. Then the nigger come back, and we said we'd come again sometime if the nigger wanted us to, and he said he would, more particular if it was dark, because the witches went for him mostly in the dark, and it was good to have folks around then. Chapter 35 It would be most an hour yet till breakfast, and so we left and struck down into the woods, because Tom said we got to have some light to see how to dig by, and the lantern makes too much, and might get us into trouble. What we must have was a lot of them rotten chunks that's called foxfire, and just makes a soft kind of a glow when you lay them in a dark place. We fetched an armful and hid it in the weeds, and sat down to rest, and Tom says, kind of dissatisfied, Blame it! This whole thing is just as easy and awkward as it can be, and so it makes it so rotten difficult to get up a difficult plan. There ain't no watchman to be drugged. Now there ought to be a watchman. There ain't even a dog to give a sleeping mixture to. And there's Jim chained by one leg with a ten-foot chain to the leg of his bed. Why, all you gotta do is lift up the bedstead and slip off the chain. And Uncle Silas, he trusts everybody, sends the key to the pumpkin-headed nigger, and don't send nobody to watch the nigger. Jim could have got out of that window hole before this, only there wouldn't be no use trying to travel with a ten-foot chain on his leg. Why, dread it, Huck. It's the stupidest arrangement I ever see. You gotta invent all the difficulties. Well, we can't help it. We gotta do the best we can with the materials we've got. Anyhow, there's one thing. There's more honor in getting them out through a lot of difficulties and dangers, where there weren't one of them furnished to you by the people who it was their duty to furnish them, and you had to contrive them all out of your own head. Now look at just that one thing of the lantern. When you come down to the cold facts, we simply gotta let on that a lantern's rescue. Why, we could work with a torchlight procession if we wanted to, I believe. Now, whilst I think of it, we gotta hunt up something to make a saw out of the first chance we get. What do we want of a saw? What do we want of a saw? Hain't we gotta saw the leg of Jim's bed off so as to get the chain loose? Why, you just said a body could lift up the bedstead and slip the chain off. Well, if that ain't just like you, Huck Finn, you can get up the infant schooliest ways of going at a thing. Why, hain't you ever read any books at all? Baron Trenk, nor Casanova, nor Benevuto Cellini, nor Henry Four, nor none of them heroes? Who ever heard of getting a prisoner loose in such an old matey way as that? No. The way all the best authorities does it is to saw the bed leg in two and leave it just so and swallow the sawdust so it can't be found and put some dirt and grease around the sawed place so the very keenest Sinesco can't see no sign of it being sawed and thinks the bed leg is perfectly sound. 
Then, the night you're ready, fetch the leg a kick. Down she goes. Slip off your chain and there you are. Nothing to do but hitch your rope ladder to the battlements. Shin down it, break your leg in the moat, because a rope ladder is nineteen foot too short, you know. And there's your horses and your trusty vassals. And they scoop you up and fling you across a saddle. And away you go to your native Languedoc, or Navarre, or wherever it is. It's gaudy, Huck. I wish there was a moat to this cabin. If we get time the night of the escape, we'll dig one. I says, what do we want of a moat when we're going to snake him out from under the cabin? But he never heard me. He had forgot me and everything else. He had his chin in his hand, thinking. Pretty soon he sighs and shakes his head, then sighs again and says, No, it won't do. There ain't necessity enough for it. For what, I says. Why, to saw Jim's leg off, he says. Good land, I says. Why, there ain't no necessity for it. And what would you want to saw his leg off for anyway? Well, some of the best authorities has done it. They couldn't get the chain off, so they just cut their hand off and shoved. And a leg would be better still. But we gotta let that go. There ain't necessity enough in this case. And besides, Jim's a nigger and wouldn't understand the reasons for it and how it's the custom in Europe. So we'll let it go. But there's one thing. He can't have a rope ladder. We can tear up our sheets and make him a rope ladder easy enough and we can send it to him in a pie. It's mostly done that way, and I've et worse pies. Why, Tom Sawyer, how you talk, I says. Jim ain't got no use for a rope ladder. He has got use for it. How you talk, you better say. You don't know nothing about it. He's got to have a rope ladder. They all do. What in the nation can he do with it? Do with it? He can hide it in his bed, can he? That's what they all do, and he's got to, too. Huck, you don't ever seem to want to do anything that's regular. You want to be starting something fresh all the time. Suppose he don't do nothing with it. Ain't it there in his bed for a clue after he's gone? And don't you reckon they'll want clues? Of course they will. And you wouldn't leave them any. That would be a pretty howdy-do, wouldn't it? I never heard of such a thing. Well, I says, if it's in the regulations and he's got to have it, all right, let him have it, because I don't wish to go back on no regulations... But there's one thing, Tom Sawyer. If we go to tearing up our sheets to make Jim a rope ladder, we're going to get into trouble with Aunt Sally just as sure as you're born. Now, the way I look at it, a hickory bark ladder don't cost nothing and don't waste nothing and is just as good to load up a pie with and hide in a straw tick as any rag ladder you can start. And as for Jim, he ain't had no experience and so he don't care what kind of a... Oh, shucks, Huck Finn. If I was as ignorant as you, I'd keep still. That's what I'd do. Who ever heard of a state prisoner escaping by a hickory bark ladder? Why, it's perfectly ridiculous. Well, all right, Tom. Fix it your own way. But if you'll take my advice, you'll let me borrow a sheet off of the clothesline. He said that would do. And that gave him another idea, and he says, Borrow a shirt, too. What do we want of a shirt, Tom? Want it for Jim to keep a journal on. <laughs> journal, your granny. Jim can't write. Suppose he can't write. He can make marks on the shirt, can he, if we make him a pen out of an old pewter spoon or a piece of an old iron barrel hoop? Why, Tom, we can pull a feather out of a goose and make him a better one, and quicker, too. Prisoners don't have geese running around the dungeon keep to pull pens out of, you muggins. They always make their pens out of the hardest, toughest, troublesomest piece of old brass candlestick or something like that they can get their hands on. And it takes them weeks and weeks and months and months to file it out, too because they've got to do it by rubbing it on the wall. 
They wouldn't use a goose quill if they had it. It ain't regular. Well, then, what do we make the ink out of? Minnie makes it out of iron rust and tears, but that's the common sort in women. The best authorities uses their own blood. Jim can do that, and when he wants to send any little common, ordinary, mysterious message to let the world know where he's captivated, he can write it on the bottom of a tin plate with a fork and throw it out of the window. The iron mask always done that, and it's a blame good way, too. Jim ain't got no tin plates. They feed him in a pan. That ain't nothing. We can get him some. Can't nobody read his plates. That ain't got anything to do with it, Huck Finn. All he's got to do is to write on the plate and throw it out. You don't have to be able to read it. Why, half the time you can't read anything a prisoner writes on a tin plate or anywhere else. Well, then, what's the sense in wasting the plates? Why, blame it all. It ain't the prisoner's plates. But it's somebody's plates, ain't it? Well, supposing it is, what does the prisoner care who's... He broke off there because we heard the breakfast horn blowing, so we cleared out for the house. Along during the morning, I borrowed a sheet and a white shirt off of the clothesline, and I found an old sack and put them in it, and we went down and got the foxfire and put that in too. I called it borrowing because that's what Pap always called it, but Tom said it weren't borrowing, it was stealing. He said we was representing prisoners, and prisoners don't care how they get a thing, so they get it and nobody don't blame them for it either. It ain't no crime in a prisoner to steal the thing he needs to get away with, Tom said. It's his right. And so, as long as we was representing a prisoner, we had a perfect right to steal anything on this place we had the least use for, to get ourselves out of prison with. He said if we weren't prisoners, it would be a very different thing. And nobody but a mean, ornery person would steal when he weren't a prisoner. So we allowed we would steal everything there that come handy. And yet... He made a mighty fuss one day after that when I stole a watermelon out of the nigger patch and eat it, and he made me go and give the niggers a dime without telling them what it was for. Tom said that what he meant was we could steal anything we needed. Well, I says, I needed the watermelon, but he said I didn't need it to get out of prison with. There's where the difference was. He said if I'd have wanted it to hide a knife in and smuggle it to Jim to kill the cynical with, it would have been all right. So I let it go at that, though I couldn't see no advantage in my representing a prisoner if I got to set down and chaw over a lot of gold-leaf distinctions like that every time I see a chance to hog a watermelon. Well, as I was saying, we waited that morning till everybody was settled down to business and nobody in sight around the yard. Then Tom, he carried the sack into the lean-to whilst I stood off a piece to keep watch. By and by he come out, and we went and sat down on the woodpile to talk. He says... Everything's all right now except tools, and that's easy fixed. Tools, I says. Yes. Tools for what? Why to dig with? We ain't a-gonna gnaw him out, are we? Ain't them old crippled picks and things in there good enough to dig a nigger out with, I says. He turns on me, looking pitying enough to make a body cry, and says, Huck Finn, did you ever hear of a prisoner having picks and shovels and all the modern conveniences in his wardrobe to dig himself out with? Now I want to ask you, if you got any reasonableness in you at all, what kind of a show would that give him to be a hero? Why, they might as well lend him the key and done with it. Picks and shovels. Why, they wouldn't furnish him to a king. Well, then, I says, if we don't want the picks and shovels, what do we want? A couple of case knives. 
to dig the foundations out from under that cabin with? Yes. Confound it. It's foolish, Tom. It don't make no difference how foolish it is. It's the right way, and it's the regular way, and there ain't no other way that ever I heard of, and I've read all the books that gives any information about these things. They always dig out with a case knife, and not through dirt, mind you. Generally, it's through solid rock, and it takes them weeks and weeks and weeks and forever and ever. Why, look at one of them prisoners in the bottom dungeon of the Castle Deef in the harbor of Marseille that dug himself out that way. How long was he at it, you reckon? I don't know. Well, guess. I don't know, a month and a half? Thirty-seven year, and he come out in China. That's the kind. I wish the bottom of this fortress was solid rock. Jim don't know nobody in China. What's that got to do with it? Neither did that other fella. But you're always a wandering off on a side issue. Why can't you stick to the main point? All right. I don't care where he comes out, so he comes out. And Jim don't either, I reckon. But there's one thing, anyway. Jim's too old to be dug out with a case knife. He won't last. Yes, he will last, too. You don't reckon it's going to take 37 years to dig out through a dirt foundation, do you? Well, how long will it take, Tom? Well, we can't risk being as long as we ought to, because it mayn't take very long for Uncle Silas to hear from down there by New Orleans. He'll hear Jim ain't from there, and his next move will be to advertise Jim or something like that. So we can't risk being as long digging him out as we ought to. By rights, I reckon we ought to be a couple of years, but we can't. Things being so uncertain, what I recommend is this, that we really dig right in, as quick as we can, and after that, we can let on to ourselves that we was at it 37 years. Then we can snatch him out and rush him away the first time there's an alarm. Yes, I reckon that'll be the best way. Now there's sense in that, I says. Letting on don't cost nothing. Letting on ain't no trouble. And if it's any object... I don't mind letting on we was at it a hundred and fifty year. It wouldn't strain me none, after I got my hand in. So I'll mosey along now and smooch a couple of case knives. Smooch three, he says. We want one to make a saw out of. Tom, if it ain't unregular and irreligious to suggest it, I says, there's an old rusty saw blade around yonder sticking under the weatherboarding behind the smokehouse. He looked kind of weary and discouraged like and says, It ain't no use to learn you nothing, Huck. Run along and smooch the knives. Three of them. So I done it. This presentation is dedicated by Gordon W. Draper to all of those who will enjoy this Mark Twain masterpiece.